When I was growing up in Bolton, I'd look to the city of Manchester, sometimes literally visible on the horizon, as a sort of exotic utopia of expression. Culture, music, art and politics. I didn't know that much about the people that were there or where they'd come from at the time. But one thing that I knew for certain, that at the heart of it was a man called Tony. Now, a new 600-page book published today grapples with the life of this complex, contradictory, brilliant, flawed human being. What? You didn't think we were going to get that far into a podcast about Manchester without a mention for Anthony H. Wilson, did you? (laughs) Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Welcome to another dive into the heart of the stories that matter in the place you love. I'm Daryl Morris. Yoshi Herman is the creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's new quality newspaper, delivered by email. Yoshi, hi. Hi, good to be on again. Glad we're still on the air. The second episode now. The difficult second episode. We made it. We made it. It can only get better from here though, can't it? It can. Uh, It can. We're very grateful to our first listeners from last week. And thank you for the feedback and for liking and subscribing. Don't forget to keep doing that. Lots to come on this week's episode, including meeting the Mills' Danny Cole shortly, uh, who met some Hong Kongers new to Manchester, particularly Trafford. That's right. So Danny is here waiting to come on and speak. And she has been speaking to people who've been arriving from Hong Kong, part of this big movement of um, Hong Kong immigrants who have arrived um, under the the government's new visa rules. And Danny's been speaking to some of them in Trafford, some of them in Manchester. And I think it's a really interesting story. Brilliant. We'll get into that in a sec. We'll meet Danny and see what she has to say for herself. Firstly, to the briefing. So let's get you briefed with what you need to know. Next week, world leaders are gathering for that decisive moment, COP26 in the fight for the environment. Closer to home, there was a Greater Manchester Green Summit this week, led by the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Yoshi, what did we learn? Yeah, I think what we learned is that Greater Manchester wants to be seen as a city region that is going faster on environmental stuff than the country is. So, for example, Andy Burnham wants to hit carbon neutrality across Greater Manchester 12 years ahead of the national target, and the national target is 2050. And at the Green Summit this week, I think what he was trying to do is say... If the government supports us with the levelling up offer that we've made, if they give us the cash, particularly for transport, public transport, that we've asked for, we will be able to get faster progress on this. He he said we'll be able to accelerate our journey to net zero, and that involves removing an additional one million tonnes of carbon over three years. So... I think this is one where Greater Manchester sees being green as a big part of its sell. And I think it's one where environmental activists still think that the talk isn't matched by actions. So we've spoken to environmental campaigners in in Greater Manchester who think there's a bit of a, a gap. In fact, they actually described it as a chasm between the promises that people like Burnham are making and the actual progress that's being made. Okay, lots of road ahead on that story, and we'll, uh, we'll revisit for sure. Now, you guys at the Mills Newsroom have been chewing through data on targets for cancer deaths, haven't you, Yoshi? This is really interesting. What have you found? Yeah, that's right. So in 2015, Greater Manchester was given sweeping new powers to run its own healthcare system. And the idea was it would be the first place in the country to integrate social care and healthcare. There's a £6 billion budget there. And what we've been doing is looking at the actual performance of the health system here since then. What we found is that in 2015, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority promised that they were, for example, going to reduce cancer deaths by 1,300 per year. And then by 2019, cancer deaths had actually gone up. They'd gone up by 100. 
What we also found is that the health body here, the health partnership, has not been transparent about the fact that it's missing its targets. For example, when they put out a five-year review report last year, they didn't include any mention of the original cancer target because it was being missed. So we've been asking questions to the health authority here about transparency, about accountability, and also about why they're not hitting their targets. And I think it's a story that's probably going to develop more as we, as we dig more into the data. And as I suppose we get answers to those questions, I assume that those answers haven't been forthcoming yet. Well, you know, the figures are there showing that they're not hitting this cancer target, that they're not hitting some other targets. They legitimately say it's too early to judge us. These are massive changes. An enormous bureaucracy of healthcare and social care is being integrated. You need to give us time. I think that's fair. I think you probably do need to give them at least a decade to turn things around. What's disappointing and I think a bit worrying is that we've got this new health authority with these new powers and that was promising this new dawn for integrated healthcare and they're not being honest about the fact that their progress has been slower than expected. They're disappearing targets that they made in 2015 and that they reiterated in 2017. So I think the the concerns here are less about the speed of change, which I think would be difficult to expect by now, but about the lack of accountability, the lack of transparency. Okay, um, another big story that will develop over the years for us to keep an eye on for sure. And while we're on the issue of Greater Manchester's health, Yoshi, where are we at with COVID figures? Yeah, there's a lot of concern nationally at the moment about COVID rates going up. A lot of graphs going around on social media showing that Britain's COVID rates are much, much higher than those on the continent. In Greater Manchester, we're not seeing that kind of growth. To give you an example, Greater Manchester's COVID rate is up around 5% versus the week before, right? So it's rising, but not that much. England's is up 20%, so it's rising sort of four times faster. The highest COVID rates we're seeing in Greater Manchester at the moment are in Trafford, um, and the lowest ones are in Bolton. But as we said last week, what we like to do is to focus on the hospital numbers. They're a little bit of a dragging indicator because it takes a few weeks for things to go from a a case to someone actually being in serious trouble in the hospital. But at the moment, those hospital numbers are still relatively low. The number of COVID-19 patients in critical care in Greater Manchester's hospitals is currently 45. It's up a little bit from last week. It was 40 the week before. But we're still way below the kind of level we saw in February, for example, where it was 170. And a story that made my heart skip when I saw it in the Mills newsletter, Yoshi, that jewel in the city's crown, John Ryland's library, a beautiful place, rumours of its demise... Yeah, there were some tweets over the weekend in which people were speculating that Rylands might be closing to the public. One person with a big following said, heard some rumours about it and their Sunday closure isn't helping with tourism. Our loveliest city centre attraction behind the scenes are ace to really hope it's not true. Well, it turns out it's not true. The, uh, yeah, <laughs> the associate director of the library came out on Twitter and said, I can categorically state that this isn't true and will never happen on my watch. We are fully committed to public access and to public engagement with research. So I think um, sometimes you just need to uh, not believe everything you read on Twitter. Okay. Breathe. Yoshi, thank you. Thanks very much. Now, in June this year, in the grip of Titan Impress Freedoms... Hong Kong's iconic Apple Daily newspaper printed its final edition. On its webpage, it wrote, We would like to thank all of our readers, subscribers and advertisers and Hong Kongers for your loyal support. Good luck and goodbye. It was a symbol of how life and freedom had changed in Hong Kong. Now, old copies of the Apple Daily newspaper are neatly stacked in a Didsbury living room. The Mills' Danny Cole met their owners, Oscar and Aya. 
Hong Kongers who arrived here in the United Kingdom in Greater Manchester in March this year. Danny, hi. Hello, how are you doing? I'm really well. This is a, a story that we've followed from the other side of the world. Similar to Afghanistan, there are parallels and big differences along the way. It's now arrived, like that other story, here in Greater Manchester. How did you set about meeting the Hong Kongers, Danny, that have arrived here? Um, well, we initially got an email from um, a man called Sean Ennis. He's part of the of Trafford Liberal Democrats. Um, and he was emailing us to tell us about a motion that they were passing called Hong Kongers in Trafford, which basically was aiming to provide greater support for people coming over here to Manchester. And we were actually signposted to a group called Trafford Hong Kongers, who, so they are Alex and Wing Sung, so two people who'd come over earlier this year. And they, they knew some people in the community. So they kindly put me in touch with Oscar and Aya, who are currently living in Didsbury. And so who, who are Oscar and Aya? They're just your typical, you know, working couple back in Hong Kong. Aya worked as a programme officer. Oscar, you know, sat on a governing body of schools. So they had some real insight into sort of the Hong Kong education system, which was partly one of the reasons why they chose to, to leave Hong Kong. Which was a big motivating factor in them wanting to leave Hong Kong, I guess, as freedom started to tighten to come to Manchester. Yeah, exactly. So, as you know, the national security law, which was, you know, recently introduced, they had some real concerns, you know, for the future of their children. When I met them, they were explaining some of the things that, you know, would be introduced. So um, children would have to memorise crimes such as subversion and dallying with foreign forces. I'm not sure what the particular phrasing was, but, you know, they had real concerns and they wanted their children to grow up in an environment where, you know, they weren't being forced to be patriotic or kind of submit to a regime they didn't want to live under. The story of how Hong Kongers arrive in the UK is well known and well told. There is an obvious channel there and that's been well documented and very newsworthy. Why Manchester specifically, though? That's a really interesting point. So um, after talking with Trafford Hong Kongers and Oscar and Aya, one of the motivations for moving to Manchester is that the price of living here is quite cheap. A lot of Hong Kongers actually are able to buy houses cash in hand because the house prices in Hong Kong are absolutely, you know, off the charts. Also, the issue of space, green space, is really important. So in Hong Kong, obviously, the urban density is very high. Um, the amount of green space, the quality of living, Aya said, you know, it, was, it felt very high pressured. So they wanted to move somewhere where the pace of life was a bit slower. Um, their children would have room, you know, to enjoy the parks and, you know, the, the housing. When I went to meet them, they were living in a, sort of a three-bed house. So obviously, they had more space. In Hong Kong, they were actually living in a two-bed apartment. So four of them in one place so fascinating um, okay and you can meet Oscar and Aya yourself and find out more about the Hong Kongers who've arrived in Manchester at manchestermill.co.uk I'll always remember my first professional radio job I was 16 at the time I just started coming into Manchester my eyes squinting into the city's bright lights and my ears soaked in its generation defining music scene you can imagine my joy then when I was asked to fetch coffee on Tony Wilson's Saturday morning radio show Talk of the Town on BBC Radio Manchester at the time the only problem being the night before my first shift Tony had died of cancer the show was being hosted by Martin Kellner in his absence and it became a three-hour tribute of sorts. His friends and his colleagues lining up 
to tell their stories of this great, great man. That morning was a, a baptism in more ways than one, professionally, and an education in this brilliant, complex, flawed guy. I felt his presence in that programme and in the cafe and in the city that day, but also his absence, literally and metaphorically, the bits of him and his story that were always really hard to pin down. He was, and in so many ways still remains to me, a myth, a legend, an enigma. Now, an epic six-page biography tries to fill some of those gaps. Yoshi has had a read of Paul Morley's From Manchester with Love, The Life and Opinions of Tony Wilson. First, let's hear from Paul Morley himself, his take on Tony as he joined BBC's Newsnight on the evening that Tony died. Tony Wilson talking to Steve Miss. Well, first of all, Paul Morley, Morley as many re- myths as, as as many realities exist for Tony Wilson. Well, I think everybody, everybody, and we'll find that here, everybody had a different version yeah. of Tony because he played to who he was talking to. I have yeah. my own version because... Um, you know, I started out as a writer and very early on, I mean, it's the great William Gibson quote about seeing the future before it's distributed. He said to me, you are a great writer and I want you here around me to chronicle these adventures. And I didn't believe him. I didn't believe a lot of things he said because it all seemed so preposterous, the way he would remake and remodel Manchester, the way that he would, you know, become more than what he was at the time, which was this rather bizarre television presenter. Eventually, everything he said would become true and he became like this weird metaphysical mayor of Manchester and everything he said would happen, he kind of made happen. He was like a historian before it happened. But everybody has a different view of him. And I think a lot of it was coloured very early on by the fact that he started as a light entertainer. Music critic Paul Morley speaking on Newsnight, talking about his friend and collaborator Tony Wilson. Yoshi, why are we talking about Paul Morley? Well, this new book comes out today. It's been a long time in the works. Paul Morley knew Tony Wilson from the mid-1970s right until he died. It's been known among people who sort of care about Tony Wilson and his legacy that this book was coming. People have been tweeting for years, you know, all I want for Christmas is Paul Morley's Tony Wilson biography. So this is a highly anticipated moment. I think it's a big Manchester book. I think whether you like Tony Wilson or whether you like Paul Morley's writing style or whatever, this is a sort of big moment in the city when a book like this comes along. Because it's not really just a book about Tony Wilson, it's a book about Manchester. It's a book about Manchester history, Manchester culture. It names dozens of different places and pubs and clubs and and hangouts in Manchester. So I think um, it's really one that's worth thinking about and looking at. And right at the heart of this book, Yoshi, is the relationship between Paul and Tony, right? That's right. So... Paul Morley in the 1970s, mid-1970s, was an 18-year-old punk sort of fan. He ran a fanzine. There was a sort of um, flowering of these homemade magazines at the time that were trying to reflect this new energy that was sort of pulsating through music and culture at that time in Manchester. And he came to Tony Wilson's attention. Tony Wilson was about seven years older. He was already a star of Granada. He had a briefly on the air, but ever since sort of much talked about show called So It Goes about music. And Paul Morley started to notice Tony Wilson was coming to the kind of gigs he was going to at underground clubs, also at some more commercial venues. And the two met at some point in the mid 70s. It's not entirely clear when. Paul Morley can't actually remember the day they met. But quite quickly, they developed a relationship. And I think This book is really a document of Paul Morley's relationship with Tony Wilson more than it is anything else, because what emerges from it is that they had this strange relationship which was... 
Paul Morley became a music writer at the NME, and therefore he was someone who Tony Wilson wanted to have on side as Factory Records got off the ground. It was important for Factory's bands to be written about in the NME. Paul Morley was a huge enthusiast for what Tony Wilson and Factory were doing. He wrote about them regularly, but at the end of the 70s, he moved to London to take up a full-time writing gig in London. And apparently that was a moment of real tension between the two, because Morley says, you know, Tony Wilson basically never forgave him for that betrayal in his mind of, of, of leaving Manchester, a thing that Tony Wilson said he would never do, and which he never did. So it was an interesting relationship. I think what emerges from the book is, is a relationship with a lot of tension. You get some slightly strange descriptions from Morley, like when he says, and I quote, some of the most awkward, embarrassing things I've ever done in public involved Tony Wilson trying to keep up with him, to compete with him, to understand him. It certainly wasn't a comfortable and warm and natural relationship. There clearly was some warmness between them, but there was also some competition, some sort of reliance, some um, bad will after Morley moves away. So that really emerges from this book in a strong way. I get the sense that he sort of describes Tony as I have always sort of seen him, which is as, as almost like a, a sun around which everything orbits. There's a brilliant line from him uh, where he says, when he was interested in you, he could place you at the centre of his world. If that infatuation ended, usually overnight, it was like being ejected into space, which is brilliant. I mean, that's a great line. And it kind of, I think, for me, it, it sums up how I assumed Tony Wilson's relationship with Manchester was. Yeah, I think what we get in this book, every couple of chapters, is we get a bit more of an insight into why it is that it is Paul Morley writing it and why their relationship developed in this slightly strange way. I sometimes get the impression in this book that Paul Morley became a bit obsessed with Tony Wilson. He talks about the fact that even if they didn't speak for ages, even if he wasn't in Tony Wilson's good books, he would still think when he wrote something or when he did something on TV, I wonder what Tony would think of that. So clearly he had a huge admiration for him. I think that's a bit of a problem for a book like this in some ways. I think Paul Morley's just very clear desire to be sort of liked by Wilson, maybe even loved by him. I think that creates a bit of a problem for a biographer. I think what it means in this book is that Morley isn't always that interested in deciding on a particular interpretation of Wilson. Often what he does in this book is he says, well, some people say this and some people say that, and then he moves on. And I think maybe someone who is a little bit more critical, maybe someone with a little bit more emotional distance from Wilson might be able to say, I'm going to spend a few pages on this and I'm going to try and get to the bottom of it. And we don't get that in this. Okay, so if I come into this thinking there are gaps, there are things that I don't know, bits of Tony Wilson that are hard to pin down, I guess we're concluding that it doesn't quite fill those gaps. It fills some gaps, I think. I think there's a strong couple of hundred pages nearer the end of the book where Paul Morley interviews key players in the world of Factory, in the world of the Hacienda. These are people he's known for decades. They're people he's written about many times before. And there are some wonderful insights there, some very moving insights from Tony Wilson's family, some really interesting stuff from Tony Wilson's collaborators at Factory. I think the interviews with Alan Erasmus in particular are really, really sort of revelatory because it's very rare that we hear from him about those years and about why he fell out with, with Wilson after the closure of the Hacienda and why they then had a rapprochement just before Tony Wilson died. So I think it does fill in some gaps. I think the disappointment of this book is the first 300 pages, which is a funny thing to say because normally if you're reading a book and you're 300 pages in and you're not liking it, you normally give up with it. But at about 350 pages in, I thought, actually, this has changed a bit. Because the first 350 are very unfocused. They come across as a writer who is essentially incapable of organising 
organising their own thoughts, incapable of keeping some themes for some chapters and others for others, totally incapable of anything resembling sort of forensic analysis, which is what you want in a biography. You don't want the, you know, Tony Wilson's dad to be mentioned in five different places in one sentence. You want a few pages where he really digs into the question of how did having a dad who turned out to be gay, how did that affect his relationship with Wilson? How did that affect Wilson's emotional life? Were there insecurities that were built up when Tony Wilson went to Cambridge and he was a, a kid from, from Salford, uh, surrounded by probably mostly public school boys? How did that affect him? We don't get that kind of analysis, and I think that's a real shame because I think if you're going to write the big sort of magnum opus, the big biography that everyone's been waiting for about such a big cultural figure like Tony Wilson, you expect a little bit more sort of research and you expect a little bit more, as you say, filling of gaps. I think some gaps get filled. I think many get left open. I think there's plenty of room for someone else to come along. And and write a, a different book and probably a better book okay i'll be ready and waiting with a million questions for now from manchester with love the life and opinions of tony wilson is out now all right yoshi uh, what are you working on in the mill newsroom this week well, this week we've got one of our big readers and supporters coming in. He's a designer and he's helping us with a uh, exciting new project, which may mean that the mill appears in print in a one-off uh, form Ooh. quite soon. So that's that's really exciting. We actually haven't announced that yet, so breaking the embargo there. We're also working on these health figures a little bit more. I think now we've got our teeth into this health authority, what they're doing, how they're performing. I think there's more important reporting to be done there and I think while the police in Greater Manchester have had a lot of focus particularly from the MEN and that's been good journalism I think there's there's more to be done on scrutinising health so we're doing a bit more on that and then on a very different note over the weekend Jack and Molly went to a very very pink very very Instagrammable restaurant in town which I sent them to I said I'd pay for their brunch if they wanted to go to this um, extremely pink restaurant they are writing about that today and after I get back from the studio, I will be reading their copy. Can't wait. Okay, lots to look forward to. Don't forget to subscribe. ManchesterMill.co.uk to get that first in your email inbox or by print, maybe, at some point soon. Okay, each week we're going to nod you in the direction of something to do in and around Greater Manchester as well. What else is going on, Yoshi? Well, we really like the look of this Corridor of Light, which is a three-night celebration. Um, it's running from tonight until Saturday. And it's on Oxford Road. It says it features a visual art and live entertainment and it kicks off um, 6pm. Nice. And um, a film festival in the city as well soon, is that right? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago we got an email from one of our readers about a film festival he organises called the Kino Film Festival. It actually already started on Tuesday, but it's going to be running until the 26th, so you've got, got a good week to see it. It's happening in Cheatham Hill, and there are some events which, at the Cervantes Institute, um, which is on Deansgate, and that looks really great. Brilliant. And I think there's a folk festival as well in Manchester. That is folk festival uh, in Manchester uh, that uh, that kicks off this week and is worth getting to if that's your bag. And a nod to Manchester's Craig Charles, who started his brand new show on BBC Six Music this week, one to four in the afternoons, live from Manchester's Media City, or Salford's Media City, I suppose. So a, a local boy doing a big BBC Six Music show out of Manchester, worth a listen in the afternoon. 
That's it from us for this week. Yoshi, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you to Danny as well. And thank you for being a part of this. Don't forget, we would love it if you could hit like, follow, subscribe on this podcast. You'll be the first to hear about a brand new episode as it lands every Thursday. And there is plenty more where this came from in the Mill newsletter. News, events and deep dives into fascinating stories straight into your email inbox. Just subscribe at manchestermill.co.uk. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. Five-star review. That's what we want. <laughs>